Now, we have been working all the way through our Advent season, looking through at Isaiah's wonderful prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we've been looking at these names or titles given to Jesus, the Messiah, that are revealed 700 years before his birth. And this is what Isaiah wrote in his prophecy. For to us, we just sang this, so it should be familiar, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, each week what we've done is we've looked at a different one of those names or titles, and now we come to our final week in this series, the fourth and final uh, title or name, and I just think this is really the climactic finish to what Isaiah was seeing and saying, and today's name that we're going to look at is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Now, we live in a world that ever since the very beginning, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, ever since mankind first sinned, we have been longing for, searching for, seeking after peace. Longing for a return to the peace that we were designed by God to live in. So this name for Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, is a really wonderful name for us today. And each week we've looked at the name in Hebrew to see if we can actually understand a little bit more how rich and wonderful this name is. And this name in Hebrew, the Prince of Peace, is the name Sar Shalom. Sar Shalom. Now, Sar in Hebrew is translated in different places in the Bible into English as prince or ruler or leader or chief or chieftain or official or captain. In fact, if you look in Strong's Hebrew word definition for this word sar, it is defined as a head person, a captain, a chief, a general, a governor, a keeper, a lord, a master, a prince, a ruler, or a steward. Now, the Hebrew word that the English uh, translators translate as peace is this word shalom, a word that many people have heard, and I think maybe one of my favorite Hebrew words in all of the Bible, one of the richest, most wonderful words uh, in the Hebrew language. Now, when we talk about an English peace, most people define peace here as an absence of conflict. But the Hebrew word shalom is so much bigger than that, so much more than that. In the Hebrew word shalom, it conveys a sense of tranquility, wholeness, completion. Shalom includes our health, satisfaction, success, safety, prosperity. It includes in it a holistic sense of fulfillment, of well-being, and of flourishing. So the name Sar Shalom, if we put it together and understand it, we are saying that Jesus is our captain our leader, our ruler, and what is it that he leads us into? What is it that he provides for us? What are the effects of his leadership, of his reign, of his rule, of his kingdom? Well, it's wholeness, healing, satisfaction, safety, flourishing. Can you see why this is a wonderful name? The Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. See, this Christmas... We desperately need to understand this truth. Real peace 
that all of creation is longing for. It's funny, you ask people, what would you like to see? And, and everyone around the world would say, oh, world peace, world peace, world peace. This peace that all of us inside are craving, are longing for, can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, we live in a violent, broken world. I'm so sick of the violence and anger that you see everywhere we look. I'm so sick and tired of all the sick and tiredness. Right? We're surrounded by broken lives and broken families. We are in desperate need of Sar Shalom, of the Prince of Peace. And you see, in the midst of all of this pain, and in the midst of all of this suffering, suffering and pain, by the way, that we are um, uh, the source of, humanity is the cause of, in the midst of all of this, God himself comes down to earth, and his name is Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. He is the only answer to our pain, our suffering, and our trouble. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, even offers us his peace. John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. See, Jesus gives us his peace in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our trouble. Jesus, through his peace, through his body and blood, with his peace, actually brings transformation in our life. Jesus doesn't just band-aid over our issues. Jesus doesn't just gloss over them. Jesus doesn't tell us just to ignore that. Jesus actually comes and produces and provides for us healing, transformation, change. He gets at the root of our issues and changes them to something brand new. Now, does that mean we won't have trouble in this life, friends? Well, Jesus actually said the opposite. Listen to what he said in regards to peace. He said, John 16, he said, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. So he warned them, he told them of the things that were going to come so that they would have peace in this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That seems like a conflict, right? It seems, how can I have peace and trouble? How can Jesus say we can have peace and trouble at the same time? Because see, according to Jesus, the way that we enter into peace is through a relationship with him. And we can have that in the midst of our trouble. There will be trouble in our life, friends. There is trouble in this world. But Christ is our peace in the midst of our trouble. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is the direction, the, the only direction that we can go looking to find peace is in Jesus. Peace is a person. Ephesians 2.14 says it like this, for he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace. Now, I know this may seem cheesy to you. You may have seen it on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt in the 90s, but friends, it's something we need to be reminded of and remember, and it's a life point. It's the only one I've got for you today. It's this. You, if you don't have Jesus, know Jesus, then you've got no peace. But if you know Jesus, then you can know peace. With no Jesus, you get no peace. But if you know him, if you have a relationship with him, you can experience the peace of God in your life today. Friends, that's the good news of Christmas. 
the Prince of Peace, Jesus, has come into our broken world, and he is offering you and I today real peace in the midst of our chaos. Philippians 4, 5 through 7 says it like this. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now listen to what then happens. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, friends. If peace is a person, then the only way you can know peace is to know Jesus. And the longing that is inside of you for peace, the longing that's inside of you for justice, the longing that's inside of you that things are not the way they're supposed to be is planted in you to draw you to Jesus. So here's what I want to do with the rest of my time. I want to shift gears because I think for many of you today, What my goal for this message would be is that when you leave here today and go home and celebrate Christmas with your family, my prayer is that that manger scene that you may have at home, that manger scene you may see as you leave our parking lot would mean something new to you today. That it would come alive for you because if we understand just how wild and crazy this story really is, that the wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, would come down into this world and be born a human baby. Let's read it from Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Let's look at some detail that the Apostle John adds in John chapter 1. Through him, this baby that we just heard about, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decisions or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I don't know if you're able to comprehend what we just heard and read. How unbelievably awesome and amazing all of this is. We have to wrap our mind around this together if we can. The creator of the universe stepped down from heaven and became one of us. 
And not as some mighty king born in a palace, surrounded by servants and with an army, he became a baby, not born in a high-tech hospital, or not even born in a clean room, for that matter. A baby born in a barn, surrounded by animals, that was then laid in an animal feed trough as his crib. Any moms out there? This isn't the situation you design, right? This isn't what we do. Even this home birth thing is a, it's another story, but you still don't do it in the barn, right? You still don't do it in the barn, and you don't set him in the feed trough afterward. He was born into the most humble and humiliating of circumstances. At long last, the long-awaited Christ had come into the world, and he came like this? The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace came into the world that he created and he came like this? Totally dependent on a human mother and father? Weak? Vulnerable? We sing this radical truth at Christmas, fullness of God in helpless babe. The creator of the universe now cannot control his own limbs. Have you seen a brand new baby? Just trying to figure out their hands, their mouth. The creator of the universe has no control over his limbs or bowels. He's in need of other people to provide for him. Warmth and protection. He's fully human, fully man. And Jesus begins his journey in this life just like the rest of us do. But he's no normal baby. He may be fully human, but he's more than just that. He was set apart before the ages even began. He's the God of the universe by whom and through whom all things were made. And now he lies in a feeding trough. But let me tell you one difference between Jesus and you. You had no choice in who, what, when, where, or why you were born. You had no control over any of that. You were totally at the mercy of your parents' will, desire, and the circumstances of your birth. But Jesus, on the other hand, did. And let me ask you, if you had a choice, would you do anything resembling what Jesus chose? From the virgin conception to parents of lowly estate, born in a podunk town that for the rest of his life would be held over his head, surrounded by undignified visitors, placed in a feeding trough, God did what no human would ever have planned. Jesus is born into a scandalous circumstance to a teenage virgin in a barn. Not at all the way you would expect the king and creator of the universe to arrive on the scene. Mary and Joseph, as they held this tiny, frail baby, could never have fully understood that this baby that they're holding in their arms was actually sent by God on a mission to destroy the power of sin and death and to rescue all of God's children once and for all from slavery of sin. See, They could have never understood that he was there to provide for us the shalom 
that God had dreamed for our lives. They could have never imagined as they looked down that this miracle baby would one day give up his own life and die so that they could be united to their heavenly Father. 1 John 4.9 says it like this, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loves us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. See, there is an amazing truth that we see happening here. God, friends, you need to hear this, God initiated the relationship with us. God came by sending His Son to seek us out and save us. And this is the exact opposite of what religion teaches. See, religion starts out with the assumption that we all have to seek out and find God. That we must be the ones to initiate the relationship. Religion tells me that I have to make myself better. I have to make myself worthy. I have to improve myself until I reach a level of understanding where I can now earn the attention, favor, peace, and love of God. But the Christmas story, friends, shows us that the opposite of that is true. God loves you so much that He was willing to send His Son. And there's nothing that you or I can do to make ourselves more lovable or less lovable. There's nothing that you can do to make our Heavenly Father, your Creator, love you less. John 3, 16 and 17 says it like this, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Okay, so this is incredible. It's amazing. The Savior, the Creator, is born, born of a virgin. He's been laid in a manger. Now this incredible news, it's so good. Who are you going to tell first, right? Because it's such good news. People need to know about it. So who are you going to let know? When something good happens in my life, I'll just go back to the highlights of my life. When my son Keegan and my daughter Kyler were born. That, that first phone call to my mom and dad to tell them the news that, that, that they had a grandbaby. That, that's such an exciting phone call. And, and you don't just call like some random person in your phone to, to give the news first, right? You, you call the people who you love who are, you're the closest with. And when God had the best newses, news of all the ages, who did he tell first? Some religious people, some wealthy people, some learned men? Nope. God told shepherds, Luke 2, 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The very first people that God chooses to give the news of the birth of the Messiah are shepherds working in their fields like they do every single night, working amongst a bunch of smelly, stubborn sheep. These were not men of influence or men of power. They had nothing to bring to offer this new baby, this new king. So why would God choose a bunch of blue-collar working guys to entrust the greatest truth of all the ages? Now, why didn't God choose the religious leaders? Surely, the religious leaders would have been excited after waiting and studying for thousands of years to meet the Messiah, the Savior. And who wouldn't like to see a multitude of angels? Anyone? Right? I'm sure they would have been over their skis excited. And maybe that would have helped them down the road. You know, they'd have been like, well, remember when those angels showed up, this is probably the one. Why not choose a king with massive influence or Caesar in Rome? If he showed up to Caesar in Rome. Or a rich man, at least who people respected and whose testimony carried some weight. But this is who God chooses. The first people in history to receive the news are shepherds who go and look upon the baby. And once again, you think when they were looking down at their ba- that baby, they understood that the baby in the manger was also a shepherd? That he, in fact, would be the good shepherd that would lead, not actual sheep, but would lead people towards God's dream for their lives. See, he had come to shepherd his people and to give us his peace, to help us and teach us how to lie down in green pastures, to to help us to come beside still waters and to restore our souls. See, that night in the field, imagine that night. It was just a normal night at work. And suddenly, a host of angels, the angel of the Lord, this is a pretty amazing night. Their life was forever changed. They weren't expecting it. It happened in an instant. They were overwhelmed by it. And what did they do? They couldn't stop telling others about it. They just, everywhere they went, they were telling everybody what they'd seen. But there's another group too that I want us to look at. One last group that I'd like us to consider. And those are the men that we usually refer to as the wise men. Matthew chapter 2 says, and after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, and they passed the test. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time and star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, unlike the shepherds who were blindsided on the night Jesus was born, they were just going about their own business, and literally they were blindsided. Angels appeared, their lives were changed. Unlike them, these wise men, these magi, knew something about the birth of the Messiah. They had some kind of knowledge and expectation of this newborn king. Now, I believe the reason for that is because you have to understand the Jews historically had been in captivity several different times in places like Assyria and Babylon, and we know that when they were in captivity, at least in the, uh, gospel, in the book of Daniel, that the scripture was there with them. And I think what's taken place is after they've come home from captivity, a remnant has stayed behind and scripture is still there and available for these wise men to study. And so these wise guys who were astronomers and philosophers, and apparently also men who were willing to search through scripture. Because when the star appeared and they started to dig through and understand what it meant, they discovered the Old Testament prophecy and began to realize that this was no regular uh, celestial event. Something more was happening. And so they stopped everything. At that realization, they stopped everything. They packed up their lives and they began to cross the country in search for this newborn king. Now you have to understand these magi are Gentile pagans, and yet God spoke to them. God led them to have an encounter with his son, because that is what God does. Christianity is not a religion for good people. It is for sinners who respond to the call of God to come and meet his son. And the Magi remind us that God is always seeking after sinners. Christmas tells us that God was willing to come down to earth to seek and save the lost. And that we don't have to be separated from God any longer. That we are not alone. That we are loved. You know, Jesus' Christmas name, we, we mentioned it earlier, is the name Emmanuel. It means God who's with us. You see, Jesus was sent by heaven on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost, us, to pay the ransom necessary to set us free from sin and death. And that ransom was steep. It would cost Jesus his very own life. Jesus came to seek after you. Friends, that's really good news. But Christmas also offers us an invitation to respond. So the question is, how will you respond? Because Jeremiah 29, 13 
God says to us, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You see, friends, this is what the Magi did. And this is ultimately what made them wise men. That's why we call them that, the wise men. What made them wise was that they were willing to seek after the Lord. And this Christmas, I pray that they would be an example to us, that we would see the invitation just as they saw it that day, and that we would seek after and find. At the end of that road, friends, was something, again, that they didn't and couldn't have possibly comprehended. God is inviting you and I today to join into His family. To experience his peace. If I asked you honestly, friends, how many of you in your very core just have that overall sense, feeling something's not right? This isn't the life and the world I was designed to live in. This isn't fair. This isn't the way things are supposed to work. And I believe with all my heart that God planted that seed in your heart when he made you. And his desire for you today, this Christmas, is that you would come to his son, Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, tells us this. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has also made you an heir. That's the good news of Christmas, friends. I'm going to ask the band that's going to be closing out our service if they'll come. Friends, I want to talk to you about one more thing and just make an invitation to you today. I have this, as I was preparing this message, this feeling that there are some of you who are here who have made the decision to follow Jesus, but you haven't yet made the decision to be baptized. And I think that this is the perfect opportunity for you as we draw to the end of a year For you to end off 2023 with a step and act of obedience to the Lord and start into 2024 with a step and obedience to the Lord. You see, baptism is our public declaration that we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and that we've been joined to Him in His death and in His resurrection. And next Sunday we are going to be baptizing as part of our service once again. And I just want to encourage you, if you have not yet been baptized, maybe you're here today and you're just making this decision for the first time. I need, I want to know the Prince of Peace, and I would encourage you, the next step for you is to be baptized. And so you have a card there, and there's a simple way that you can tell me, hey, I want to be baptized. You just check that box that says, I want to be baptized. This week, we'll talk to you. We'll get you set up so that next week you can end 2023 and start 2024 with this act of obedience. My prayer today 
on this Christmas is that you would see the gift of Jesus in a new way. Just how wonderful and beautiful his invitation to you is to experience his peace, to experience his love. And I want to encourage you as we get ready to close out this service today that don't just make this next moment a hallmark moment because it's fun to hold a candle in your hand. But consider for yourself for a moment just how radical this story actually is. Just how amazing it is that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, would come down to find you, to seek you out, to sacrifice his life on your behalf. It's a beautiful, wonderful story, and it's 100% true.